This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Rumya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Kelly and Rumya. We're here with you for the next two hours. Now, we are starting the Swaparoo early in the week today. I'm Rumya Amadin, and Grant Hardy is joining me today. He's going to be here for the whole show. I think Kelly gave people the heads up yesterday, Grant, about you joining me. Hello. Hello. Well, it's important that we gave the folks the heads up because, mm. you know, people need to make sure they can sort of tolerate two hours of... <laughs> Grant Hardy, but really great to uh, be with you today. Yes, and not just tolerate today, but actually tomorrow. You are the the consistent, uh, what do they call it, the common denominator uh, throughout the week because you're going to be here tomorrow. I'm not. I'm swapping out with Ke- Kelly. And then you might be back Friday. You were definitely here yesterday. You know, a lot of you. It's nice. It's um, going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I've been experiencing lately is as it gets colder and darker, I'm more hunkered down, ready to watch TV, ready to listen to audiobooks, just not go out anymore, period. And mm-hmm. a lot of this means, oh, what were the shows that I wanted to get to this time last year that I didn't? Now I have time for. So Brooklyn Nine-Nine is my current binge. Uh, there are some books on the to-read list as well that I want to get to. But do you have mm-hmm. something... A movie, a series of some sort, podcast, audiobooks, TV, that you want to get to. Some kind of thing that either it's been on the back burner or very high on your to-read, to-watch list, but just haven't been uh, gotten to yet. Hmm. I would say maybe the Lord of the Rings series. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tried to read it when I was really young and... Uh, like literally back in the days when other people told me stories, you know, because the books weren't always accessible and stuff and it was good family time. Uh, So got through the Hobbit, but I just got bored with the first. Yeah. So (laughs) one, one day, maybe, I guess reading it when you're not like 12 is probably a good idea too. Uh But it is still one of those series you want to get through. Like you, you haven't taken it off your list. Uh, yeah, I mean, my bucket list for books is is jam packed. It's just the actually reading part that I struggle with, the like collecting books oh, yeah. part and easy. putting books that that's easy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, Lord of the Flies is another one that I swear to you, I've tried to read three times and I just can't. And the the, the reason why I remember it is because you said maybe uh, when you're 12 years old, I feel like mm. I skipped over, missed my opportunity to get through Lord of the Flies. And now I just feel like an adult who hasn't read Lord of the Flies or watched the movie. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, let's see what else is coming up on the show today. Other than great conversations between Grant and I, we have Curious Minds with Christine Malik, and we're talking about artificial intelligence and uh, image description again. But there's a new level that Christine has got to. The provincial grouping of user communities is having uh, is having a webinar to improve the quality of services offered to the users of the Health and Social Services Network. Montreal community reporter Matthew Rochette has those details. Also, collections and hobbies. 
Hobbies today with AMI visual producer for uh, now with Dave Brown. Bruce McLaren is joining us. He's got some bikes that he revamps and um, we're going to learn all about them later on today. A new report says the average asking price for a rental unit in Canada reached $2,178 last month, and this is a 9.9% year-over-year increase. It continues a trend that has uh, asking or that has seen asking rents hit new highs for six months in a row. That's a lot. Wow. The data released by Rentals.ca and Urban Nation show that while October's annual rate of rent growth in Canada was down from the 11.1% jump in September, it still marked the second fastest annual increase of the past seven months. Vancouver still leads the way as Canada's most expensive city for renters, with the average one-bedroom unit listed at $2,872. The report says rent inflation in Canada is being driven by by price increases in Alberta, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. It's unreal because you hear the um, kind of like the average out they did and think Canadian rental units overall, but the three slash four provinces, and even in those provinces, Grant, the major cities that are just running the high end of this is ridiculous. You know, it's just so sad, and I wish I had something positive to say, but mm. I just don't. It is so hard for people, millennials, young people, to get started in Vancouver. You just can't do it. So, someone told me, if I, if I gave you a million dollars, you couldn't buy, like, a reasonable no. house here, let alone renting. It's, yeah. I don't know, Ramya, it's terrible. In fact, I mean, hearing a million dollars and thinking, oh, that's a lot of money, but no, it actually isn't in Toronto and Vancouver. Just enormous skyrocketing prices and the thing is everybody even if you don't want to put your stuff out for this much as a landlord mm -hmm. for market rent prices you have to because then there's the trickle effect of affordability for everything else in lifestyle so ooh, it's, uh, thank it's you for, tough yeah it's really tough yeah and moving out of the cities is tough and different populations and the accessibility around that is tough there's just That's nowhere it. to it's go it's tough for us. It's like we it's so easy to say just move out, but mm. we don't we don't always have a lot of choice. We don't have those connections that we have in the big cities. So exactly. I'm sure it's tough for you too. Oh yeah. And and where do you go? I have a, a friend uh, who's a single mom who's having a second kid who's trying to move out of Toronto simply for affordability and like how far out she's looking is impossible. Like might as well leave the province. We're gonna take a break. And come back with Ask a Veterinarian. This is a staple Tuesday conversation with Dr. Danielle Johnkind. And today's topic is motivating change in behavior for our pets. I'm thinking dogs. Are you thinking cats? We'll be right back to find out more. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. Kelly and Ramya with Ramya and Grant. Is that confusing yet? Well, the whole week is going to be full of fun like that. Grant and Kelly tomorrow as well, just giving you some programming notes. Uh, but one thing that we will keep is our Ask a Vet conversation with Dr. Danielle Jeankind. Today, we're talking about motivation and how it affects behavior in our pets. 
Whether they provide us with companionship and income, food, or serve a critical role in the ecosystems that support us, animals are vital to human health. Have fun with us as we learn about animal-related topics and about the amazing bond we share with our animal friends. We have our own biases coming into this conversation about which pets we're thinking of and what behaviors and how motivation really uh, scales differently accordingly. But when we think about training a pet, it often conjures up images of dogs following obedience commands, and it relates to, however, far more than this. Whether we mean to or not, we all train our pets every time we interact with them, and this is part of, quote, civilizing our furry family so that they can successfully live in human households. What we don't often realize, Danielle, is while we're busy training our pets, they're also training us in a sense. I think some of us realize that a little more than others. But today, Danielle, <laughs> you're going to take a lighthearted look at human interactions and how they um, affect us, the humans, as well as our pets. So in this context of what we're going to talk about, how do you define the word training? Well, I'm, I'm going to look at it first from a human perspective. So, you know, if I want my sweet little kitty Eve to perform some sort of behavior when I tell her to, there have to be a few <laughs> things in place, you know, for, for that to happen. So it's a cute course, idea, the, training your kids. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, the first thing is communication, right? I have to be able to indicate to her what I want her to do, and she has to understand that. Um, the second thing, of course, that needs to be in place is that she has to have some kind of motivation to perform the behavior, which if you have a cat, you know that's always the issue. And of course, since Eve is a cat and I'm a human, we don't speak the same language, so I have to teach her what my signals or words mean and then find some way to convince her that displaying the behavior I want her to do is something she wants to do as well. But fascinatingly to me, this process also seems to work in reverse too. So if mm. Eve wants me to do something for her, she also has to teach me what her signals mm. mean and then find a way to motivate me to do that for her. So when I think about this, I think my motivations are a little more complex than hers. You know, she might want me to feed her and start running back and forth between her bowl and the food bag, winding herself around my feet in the process. And I might really want to see her happily eating while I scratch her back and feel good about myself for making her happy. But I also know that I can override that particular motivation with the thought that, you know, she's already been fed and I don't want her to get diabetes from uh. being overweight. So I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're the complex ones in the equa occasion uh, equation. So yes, I. Oh, sorry, Ramia. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. So uh, Ramia and I, I we both kind of talked about this during the the break, and I I think we're both very curious how you motivate all animals, especially cats. I feel like I speak dog language a lot more than than cat language, but it could be either cats or dogs or any pet. What, what are some of those ways you can motivate them to modify their behavior? Well, behavior theory is something we learn in vet school, of course, and the, it teaches that there are four things that can lead to motivation to either perform or to stop a behavior. So, of course, these are kind of 
classified into positive things and negative things. So a positive consequence results in either a reward or a punishment being added to affect the motivation to perform a behavior. And a negative consequence is a reward or a punishment being taken away to affect that motivation. So if we break those down, you know, of course, the first in these four things is positive reinforcement, which is usually what we use to train pets. So this is rewarding a desirable behavior with something pleasant. So of course, you know, we do this for our pets whenever we feed them, when we touch them affectionately, when we give them what they want, or when we praise them. And ironically, our pets do this for us, you know, when they act affectionately toward us, when they play with us, or even when we think they just seem happy, you know, something about a happy pet makes us happy too. Mm -hmm. And really, that's kind of the nature of the human animal bond, you know, these positive interactions with our pets are rewards for both of us. So they're kind of like a form of positive reinforcement. So the second motivator is called positive punishment. And that's when an undesirable behavior is discouraged by pairing it with an unpleasant or painful consequence. So things like shock colors for barking dogs work on that principle, you know, bark, shock, bark, shock. Mm. And in theory, the pain of the shock makes the behavior less likely to be performed again. Ideally, you would never use this to train your mm. pets, okay? Um, but of course, we could apply the same principle um, from pets to humans. I mean, pets sometimes enact a negative consequence. You know, if we ignore a warning like a hiss from a cat or a growl from mm -hmm. a dog, we might get bitten or scratched, right? So that would be an example of that. So the third um, behavior motivator is called negative reinforcement. So when a negative consequence is applied constantly and is only stopped when the behavior we don't want is stopped. So dog vibration collars sometimes work on that, you know, um, they'll put them on the dog and um, tell the dog to come back. When the dog ignores the commander gets too far away, the collar vibrates and doesn't stop until the dog starts to come back to the handler. Um, and again, pets sometimes use this strategy on people. Yep. You can, that noisy cat who is howling at the food bowl, you know, suddenly goes quiet when you feed them and you're like, oh, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You often hear people talking about like they do it for the attention or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the last motivator is negative punishment, which means to take mm. a reward away when an undesirable behavior is performed. So, you know, when you're at the front door and your dog is jumping all over you, you know, we take our attention, which of course is a reward to our pets, away from them until they stop. Oh, and, you know, my, my cat... Yes, my cat does this to me when I go to brush her, you know, unless I get somebody to hold her for me. She's going to run from what she doesn't like, which mm -hmm. is the same kind of thing as taking her attention away from me. Now, obviously, we have absolutely no evidence to support that our pets intentionally or logically consider any of these principles with the intention of affecting our behavior. That's a human thing and our pets aren't human, but... We can observe, though, that pets adjust their behavior in whatever way they learn will get them what they want. Yep, I was going to say. <laughs> Anecdotally, <laughs> there's a lot to the contrary. <laughs> okay, yeah, so <laughs> you spend enough time I'm, with your pet and you're like, I think he knows. Yeah, yeah he knows. I feel like. I feel like definitely cats at least are smart enough to like, I, I, I always find it the cat that I know best. If you do something you, she doesn't like, you know, change her food or whatever, she will, she will go right up to her litter box 
and use her the washroom right outside oh, of the litter box and i'm like savage. this this is not like this is not a mistake this is a <laughs> very clear message that that's cat is sending exactly uh, but i am very curious danielle because i feel like especially these um four you know uh, what did you call them like theories around motivation can result in some funny situations no <laughs> Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there are tons and tons of funny videos online of, you know, pets that have people doing all kinds of outrageous things. And, you know, and I hear, um, you know, things from clients sometimes too about their pets motivating them to do all kinds of funny and even unnecessary things like I have to feed him by hand is a big one. I'm like, mm. really? Mm. <laughs> you know? But, you know, it's funny because I'm certainly not one who can sit there and pass judgment on anyone who is trained by their pets. Because even though I'm very aware of how this works and supposedly educated, even though I'm not immune to being manipulated by my pet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Eve absolutely hates to be ignored, and we're in an ongoing war over this issue. So when she wants something, she is darn determined that she is going to get it if she possibly can. And, you know, from my perspective, of course, there are appropriate times to ask for things. And then there are times when I definitely do not want her to bug me. So, of course, one such time is in the evening before bed. Um, if we need to unwind, my husband and I will curl up on the couch and watch something on TV. Now, if Eve wants something and we don't get up to get it for her, she will jump up on shelves, the TV console or tables, and she starts knocking things off and breaking. <laughs> oh, Oh, he told yes. us about this, the one by one, right? Yes. And, you know, I'm sure it started way back when she was a baby because she was trying to amuse herself while we were ignoring her. But she quickly learned that we would get up to stop her yep. so she wouldn't well, sure. break anything. Yep. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, if we get up to stop her and then we don't give her what she wants, we, you know, we'll sit down on the couch and she goes right back to knocking things off and breaking them. And the only way to stop is to lock her in the bathroom and listen to her house. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Or to give her what she wants. And, you know, to me, I'm thinking in my brain, you know, this is a classic situation of negative reinforcement applied against me and my husband. You know, totally. she will continue to apply these unpleasant consequences until we perform the behavior she wants from us. And from her perspective, she gets positive reinforcement for her bad behavior when we finally give her what she wants. So we have allowed ourselves to be trained. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say, uh, the only thing more stubborn than a stubborn cat is my stubborn poodle. And it's the same thing, right? Like, he, for example, does not like the command down, especially if it's uh, used for when he's too being too riled or too social and wanting to hang out with a dog that doesn't seem interested. So he will go down, but he will do it only to appease me and then just inch his way, slither <laughs> on the ground towards me. I say his prey, but, you know, his social mate who doesn't feel like socializing. And I'm thinking he knows that if I if he goes down, then I'll stop paying attention or at least reduce my attention around this, uh, you know, OK, he's gone down. I'll relax now and I won't notice him inch his way across the floor. I don't know which of the four categories this falls under, Danielle, but I know that it's a manipulation tactic for sure. <laughs> For sure. 
And and I know. Sorry, Grant. Go ahead. You were going to no. share something. Oh no! And let's let's face it. It's it's a big game too, right? They're like, I I know she she's going to be mad at me, which is kind of funny <laughs> yeah. or it makes it a little bit interesting. I know she's not going to actually, you know, in the meantime. Me yeah. <laughs> so let's just have a bit of fun. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. And I know my my cat. The other time, I insist on ignoring hers in the middle of the night. Mm. Um, my husband generally gets up for work at 5 a.m. and he feeds her but Eve starts getting hungry around 3 a.m. so if one of us is stupid enough to leave the bedroom door open <laughs> she will come into the room and start breaking things again and making noise that I can't sleep through and I used to get out of bed when this happened and she would run for her food bowl or I would catch her and put her out of the room and once she was out of the room I would shut my door and go back to sleep and ignore her so she got wise to that tactic Ooh, pretty fast right. oh yeah, and when I get <laughs> out of bed up? now, yeah, she leveled it up. Like this is <laughs> this is crazy. She'll run and hide under the bed, and I can't reach her. If I ignore her and go back to bed, the noise starts up again, and I'm, you know, I it's absolutely not come out from under the bed until she hears the sound of kibbles falling to her bowl <laughs> in the kitchen. Gosh. I kid you not. And my latest tactic in this little war is to run downstairs, drop a pen into her bowl <laughs> so she comes running, and then race back into my room before she can get there. You're but it's a hollow her. victory. It's a hollow oh. victory. This oh. war is going to escalate. You know, it just is. And you know she's still the one winning. You're just trying to see if you can one-up, but not yet, Danielle. I know, and I know I should just ignore her, you know, but I can't, you know, yeah. and that's just sad. It's really. your sleep, it's your stuff that's breaking, it's extra food and the diabetes, everything is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, this is so hilarious. Thank you so much. You're welcome. What a fun angle on the topic of motivation and our pets' behaviors and Apparently how they're training us also. Dr. Danielle Johnkind will be back next week with some more Ask a Vet conversations. And after the break, we're actually, uh, it's not just hosts flipping around. We have content flipping around for you as well. Curious Minds today with Christine Malik. We're continuing the chat around artificial intelligence and image description. Um, yeah, what do you call it? Christine has been really leveling up her experience around this. We'll be right back to find out more. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. You're listening to Kelly and Ramya on AMI, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-TV, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Those are the first two editions of the show and then always and forever available on podcast just kidding we do expire at some point some of the episodes <laughs> but you will find us on podcasts on demand we're uh, available with full show and segments out availability it's great that way because you can share content in snippets grant hardy ramya amuthan here with you for the next couple hours so as Ramya mentioned, the hosts are a little different today and the content flipping that around a little bit because now it's time to get to Curious Minds with Christine Malik. I'm Christine Malik, and this is Curious Minds, our dive into arts, culture and science from a blindness perspective. 
Hey, Christine, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. So, thank you. Today, we're kind of going to continue the conversation about AI and image description, uh, but kind of taking it to a new level, right? Mm. Yeah, so I'm still totally preoccupied with with um, <laughs> be my AI, but um, thanks to the input of uh, someone whose initials are <clears throat> Ramya Amuthan, uh, I took <laughs> oh, it to the I next level in this following way, which is ChatGPT does obviously, as we know, if we watch the news, way more than image description, including mm -hmm. making things up and writing, which mm. is controversial for many reasons, mm. as it should be controversial, but it's it's a fact and it's a going thing. And so what I did was I took three photos very deliberately, um, mm -hmm. and I had the AI described them for me, and then I gave it some prompts, and I've got two sets of results. And so I'm going to describe the photos just really quickly myself, just so we can get to the juicy stuff. The <laughs> photos I took very deliberately were, one is of a silver bracelet on a wooden wooden surface, and mm -hmm. the second is a wall showing three guitars and one empty guitar hook. And the third photo is the maple tree in my backyard turning color. And mm. so uh, this this is the mischief that uh, that I've been up to. And so <laughs> why don't we give a mm -hmm. listen, a, a look at the photos and a listen to the first prompt and what we came up with. Let's do. Compose a short folktale in rhyming verse with a lighthearted tone, which addresses themes of bringing harmony to a divided world. Be my AI, in a room with guitars on the wall. Lived a bard who could play tunes that enthrall, with strings made of silver, and wood that could sing. His music brought joy, made hearts take wing. One day on the floor, a bracelet he found. Twisted and silver, it lay on the ground. He strummed his guitar, and to his surprise, the bracelet did shimmer, and started to rise. It flew out the window, up to the sky. The bard grabbed his guitar, and started to fly. They soared over rooftops, and through the trees, till they reached a tall one, with red autumn leaves. The tree was enchanted, its branches did speak. They whispered of harmony, that all creatures seek. The bard played his guitar, the bracelet did glow. Together they danced, in the wind they did flow. The leaves turned to music notes, floated around. The tree's branches swayed to the beautiful sound. The world felt the music. Hearts started to mend. Divisions and strife seemed to come to an end. The bard and the tree, with the bracelet's might, brought harmony back, made the world feel light. And so, the tale goes, when music takes flight, it heals. I feel so My tranquil now. <laughs> so, so, for me to, I'm, I'll say I'm impressed. I definitely am impressed mm. for me to do that would I could have I could do it. It would probably have taken me an hour or two and it did it in about, you know, 15 seconds. Mm. But do we like it? I mean, I'll go first. I'd like to know what you guys think. It's it's not great. It's kind of flat and the rhymes are kind of simplistic and obvious. There's there's no complexity. There's no surprising rhymes. There's no metaphor. So it's it's formulaic, which folktales mm -hmm. are, but, you know, I'm impressed because of how quickly it could do it. 
And if I was not a writing, rhyming person and I needed, wanted something like that, well, there you go, right? It's just done for you. Yep. Um, what do you guys think of that? That's exactly what I was going to say. Not exactly. What I was going to say is the credit of it coming up with what you needed uh, is it's doing that well, like what you asked for, right? Take these pictures, create this kind of thing. And it did it, but it's lacking in that creative sense, I guess. And then that would, I guess, come back to you, right, Chris? Like you would have to further prompt it to add or rearrange things or add some kind of a strength to it in different ways. Um, I'm not sure how you would do that, but I feel like you could continue to tweak the way that it does this or else yes. it just becomes kind of eh, mundane yes yeah and so I'll, I'll let you in on something which is that i've done this not with this piece but i'm working on another one um i was asked to asked to tell a folktale at a storytelling event by someone who is really opposed to AI, oh. partly because of its its desire to storytell. He's a storyteller. And so he doesn't know this, and I'm really, really hoping he's not watching. But at his event, <laughs> I'm going to do basically this, but I've taken the AI story and totally embellished it with my own, you know, my own, yeah, whatever, my own writing skills. So giving so, you the Lego. Uh, I'll report. I'll report next month on yeah. how shocked, how shocked he was. But um, so I did something else. I, I gave it a different prompt, also. So why don't we? It's the same same photos, the bracelet, the guitars on the wall, and the tree. But I gave it a different prompt, and, and the results a bit longer. So why don't we check that out? Now? Okay. Before we get to that, though, Grant, did you want to say anything on the first version? Oh, sorry. Yes, please. Grant. You know, man, I have such mixed feelings about AI. I really do. I think that the uh -huh. descriptions are great. Like the way it can describe images are, are magical. I think that for creative writing, I, it's interesting because we always forget that these LLMs, large language models, don't know what the words they're saying actually mean. And sometimes you can have rhymes or just context that like doesn't really make sense or, or isn't mm -hmm quite the way that a human would write and in a way i'm kind of mixed about people creative writing with it but it's interesting that you've got that chat bot you can just keep asking it questions you don't have to just get it to describe images and the fact that it can come up with that in like two seconds is really <laughs> right. incredible mm. and if you are you know if you want to be a writer say i don't i feel like it's going to change the idea of creativity because a lot of people who want to write feel really daunted and mm. they don't know how exactly. to start. It's just the blank page syndrome. And so maybe this becomes the the template on a blank page mm -hmm. that then Jumping you personalize with yep. your own creativity. So I don't think it signals the death of creativity. I think mm. it's just changing how we approach it. Absolutely. Okay, you want to go to the, uh, what yes. did you describe it as? A second prompt for the same set of images? Yeah, I get same images, okay. uh, different prompt. All right. All right. Write a folktale in prose, short, in a somber tone, about grief. Avoid use of the word quaint. Be my AI, in a dimly lit room adorned with guitars. There lived an old musician named Harold. The guitars, once full of life, now hung silently on the wall, mirroring the emptiness in Harold's heart. His life had been filled with melodies, but the music died the day he lost his beloved wife, Elora. One gloomy day. As Harold was aimlessly wandering around the room, 
his foot stumbled upon something. It was a small, silver-braided bracelet that belonged to Elora. The sight of the bracelet brought a flood of memories and tears to his weary eyes. Driven by a sudden urge, Harold decided to take a walk outside, clutching the bracelet. The world outside seemed as desolate as his heart. He walked until he found himself in front of an ancient, towering tree. The tree was almost bare, with only a few red leaves clinging to its branches, as if holding on to the last vestiges of life. Harold felt an inexplicable connection to this tree. He sat down at its base and began to weep. His tears soaked into the roots, and something magical happened. The tree seemed to absorb his grief. The wind rustled through the branches, and Harold could hear faint whispers. It was as if the tree was speaking to him, sharing stories of all the souls it had comforted over the centuries. Harold, still clutching Elora's bracelet, felt a gentle nudge to tie it to one of the branches. As he did, the red leaves on the tree glowed with a soft light. The whispers grew louder, and he could distinctly hear Elora's voice among them. She spoke words of love and told him that she was now at peace. The tree, with its ancient wisdom, had become a guardian for the memories and love of those who had passed. It stood as a testament that even in grief, there is a connection that transcends the physical world. So again, it's formulaic. Yeah. It's got a lot of cliches. But one thing I did notice is that it had a tiny bit of use of metaphorical language mm, when it mm -hmm. said he felt a nudge to attach the bracelet to a tree. That's a metaphorical use of language. He didn't have someone pushing his arm. Right. He felt a, a, a nudge. So it's a, it's a use of metaphor. And so I really think, as I've, you know, I've said in other contexts on this subject, that we're seeing the infancy of a, 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 a something that's dying to be a storyteller. Mm, it mm. really wants to tell us stories. As as we know, Grant, I think you, you've been using this a lot for description. So you know, it really I, wants to use words like quaint and picturesque. And, <laughs> yeah, I'm and so you can... You... Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, you you can tell it not to do that, but it's it's dying to make friends with you and yes, tell you yes, a story yes, and give you some ever. cliches and comforting language. Yeah, what were you going to say, I'm Grant? I'm just trying to get over the his tears soaked into the roots yeah, or whatever yeah. it said like that's very <laughs> dramatic it's it's it, yeah it's huge like it was a cute story and and kind of emotional too it's just it's weird to me that like the a computer is coming up with this without knowing what it means, but I can I can see the infancy of that creative writing right. with AI. And also, and we've seen it in other contexts where AI is playing roles, right? Like AI will be a professor, AI will be a psychologist, AI will be your family member. Um, and I think that a lot of what I'm hearing, like the underlying is, how do we make AI more us? Like if you're mm. wanting to write and you're like, this is a little flat for me. I want more metaphors. I wouldn't have used this there. Is it also just learning our writing style? I don't know if we can do that with this generic um, method or tool, which is, was it Be My AI that you were using? So ChatGPT? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know if this can cater to us particularly, but in a sense, isn't that what we're doing? Like we're uploading ourselves and our writing styles with the prompts and with our preferences, and then hopefully it's becoming better at understanding what we want in a story, where we would go with it. 
And if you are a writer already with yeah. a body of work, you can submit your yeah. whole novel probably totally. to ChatGPT yeah. and say, write me a novel, a science fiction novel about this, this, this plot points in this style. Yes. And I don't know how it yeah, would do, you... but obviously like a folktale, it is a very formulaic thing. So mm. in a way it's not the best um it's not the most challenging to give to to an ai but uh yeah. i decided to start with it because i knew the kinds of tropes it would come up with mm -hmm. and, and yeah. it did and they're pretty boring <laughs> so yeah, you... in my yeah, go ahead great no go ahead in my personalizing of the story that i'm working on i threw in a lot of whimsical language and a lot of right. informality mm -hmm. and and stuff yeah. to make it more personal because you can kind of give it this prompt this like system prompt of of what you want in right. fact uh, be my ai actually has one too it says that if you're describing an image to a blind person uh really interesting discussion we got to go there thanks so much christine thank you Join us usually on the third Thursday of the month, a little different this month, for Curious Minds with Christine Malik. And after the break, we're going to learn about efforts to make artificial intelligence more inclusive and equitable. We've got a professional joining us on the subject. She's got a lot to say. We'll find out more on Kelly and Romia. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Romia on AMI-tv. just packed with tech conversations today on Kelly and Remya, minus the uh, animal behavioral conversation we had with Dr. Danielle Jean kind of bit earlier. But really uh, getting into artificial intelligence just before the break with Christine Malik on Curious Minds. And this was part three of her continuing to explore AI in the use of um, image description and how far we can really take it, not just describing images, but then creating prose and poetry as well. We're going to continue on with artificial intelligence, but in a different context. Uh, and our guest now joining us is Dr. Yuda Treviranus. She's the director of OCAD University's Inclusive De Design Research Center, and she's with us today to chat about an exciting announcement. She's recently been appointed as chair of the Standards Committee to develop a standard on accessible and equitable artificial intelligence systems for Accessibility Standards Canada and the Accessible Canada Act. That is a lot to take on. We want to know exactly what this mean means. Dr. Trevor Rennes, thank you for coming on, Kelly and Ramia. Thank you. And um, it, it was fascinating to listen to the end of the last uh segment that you had, they, it spoke to the extreme opportunities that exist potentially within mm. AI. We can make it accessible and equitable. And um, so th that is part of what I'm attempting to do. Oh, fantastic. And I'm curious about the context around this. Uh, obviously, AI is one of the most rapidly changing technologies in our lifetimes. What are some of those accessibility and equity, equity uh, issues for large language models that you want to bring up in this little time that we have to spend with you? Well, actually, I'm working on a phased approach where mm. we initially address uh, all of those pervasively deployed uh, uses of AI that currently happen. There are AI is used to make hundreds of decisions that affect our life and that have a, a huge influence on us. And if you have a disability, then 
Um, there are a number of ways in which AI and those AI decisions can be quite harmful because AI is choosing for the majority. It's optimizing the successes mm. for um, people who were successful in the past, and it's not recognizing you if you are in any way anomalous or not like the average of the data set that has been trained on. So um, while we're also moving towards the, the generative AI or the large language models and things like chat GPT, the first thing we want to do is to address the um, pervasive deployment of AI in everything from who gets hired, who um, gets admitted into a college or a university, who gets mortgages, what your red credit rating is, what type of advertisements are shown, um, what uh, the politicians will put on their platform, uh, who gets audited for tax uh, purposes, etc. So that's the first stage. Mm -hmm. And then once we've addressed those fairly significant harms that people are not really as yet fully aware of, um, chat GPT and generative AI and large language models have caught the attention of everyone. But there are many other uh, instances or uses of AI that um, are to us, uh, people are not conscious of. They There may be decisions made about you that you don't even know that an AI was helping to make those decisions. And if an AI is making a decision, it's uh, frequently not making exceptions for people that are not like the, the average of that data set or not like the majority. Can you maybe give an example of some of the tangible harms out there or incorrect decisions that AI could be making or that you've seen it make related to the right. disability community? And how are you addressing those critical issues? Right. So um, one of the things that I've been doing over the past year or two is to look at harm and incident databases. We started to sound the alarm um, well uh, before. Um, so back in 2013, 13, et cetera, about this, a specific type of harm, which we call statistical discrimination. Mm -hmm. The AI is using statistics to um, make decisions. Even the, the generative AI and large language models is just using statistics. It's saying, if uh, this is the, the word, then the most likely next word is going to be this word. Mm -hmm. And um, it, uh, there's modifiers to that. So if this is in the area of humor or whatever, then the most likely next word is this word. And so that, that statistical discrimination discriminates towards the majority and away from the minority or away from people who are not um, the majority within the data set it was trained in. So what are the some of the harms? Um, there are the typical harms that you've probably heard of in the news, such as if you are unlike people who were employed within an organization before or within the organization that the system is trained on, then you will likely not be picked to get an interview. Um, and uh, the interpretation within, say, an assessment that is done for employment will likely rule you out. Um, but there are, watching the databases there, it's spreading much further. And unfortunately, it's been an exercise and a bit of 
intuitive I told you so that these things would be emerging mm. so parents with disabilities have been falsely flagged as unfit um, there are many more false positive tax audits if you have an unusual tax filing which most people with disabilities will have um, false positive security flagging so security flagging whether it's at airport or, or in other situations because you're not like um, what the system is expecting it will flag you for additional uh, security uh, screening um, you can um biased credit and acid ratings uh being denied mortgages and loans um un unfair uh, high insurance rates um uh, the but there's also these things that many of the systems that are intended to protect everybody uh, against ai bias such as um, the risk assessments or the impact assessments that many governments are implementing are also using statistical reasoning so uh, if the incidents that occur to you because you are anomalous and because you have a disability um turn up, they will be deemed to be anecdotal and um, too low an incident or too low a risk when balanced against the benefit to the majority. So I, I'm worried about both the initial implementation of AI, but also the protections that are being put in that are ignoring the risks to people with disabilities. Mm. Yeah, and it's the kind of worry about is it too late to pull back and where are we headed because obviously the growth is exponential in just any kind of use case for ai so it worries me like these are the things to worry about the ethics around it um how do how do we plan on addressing these ethics you know is it teaching ai a different way, uh, a different way of calculating, a different way of analyzing, a different way of averaging out, like all these different examples that you gave? Or is it still a lot of human intervention on a case-by-case -case basis? Because I, I don't know if that's even possible anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really good question. And if we ask to be excluded from the AI-based decision, are we going to get service that is equivalent, just yeah. as timely, um, just as smooth, you know, uh, offered at the same time? Um, so th that is a, a huge question. But I think one of the hopeful things is that um, in the uh, previous interview, you were talking about personalizing. Mm. And the, the unfortunate thing with AI at at the moment and statistical reasoning as it's used is that it is um, doing what is average. It is doing, it is following the tropes, it's following the patterns. And when it comes to discrimination, it's automating, amplifying and accelerating the discrimination that's all already there. So the harm was there before AI amplified it. We've always had statistical reasoning in most of our decision systems, whether it's voting, whether it's majority rules, um, determination of, of uh, what will be happening or whether it's figuring out what is in fact uh, good evidence uh, empirical evidence it's usually based upon statistics can we statistically show that um, this particular thing is true for the majority and so i i think it 
it takes not just looking at AI, but it's also looking at how do we decide and how have we been deciding? And is that um, what happens to people who are not the majority, who are outliers? And so um, the, one of the questions that was asked in the previous discussion was, can we personalize it? And mm. personalization means that the AI has to recognize that people are different and people have different priorities and different ways in which they want to optimize their life. Um, the, the really wonderful things that AI is currently doing, such as pattern recognition or Be My Eyes, um, that sort of thing is also actually subject to this statistical discrimination because if you were to take that system and use it in a place where um there are all the products have a different language on them mm -hmm. or it's a very poor environment that has or it's it's an environment that has completely different products different different street layouts, different ways of mark demarcating a bathroom, um, then it will not work because it's based upon uh, what the average of what it is trained on. And uh, so, uh, for example, we tried it out in a village in Kenya and it recognized almost nothing. Um, mm. So it's the the what that does in terms of some of these systems is it means that the people that need it the most are the people that for whom it works the worst. And so even with the miraculous, wonderful things that AI can do, um, it is still, uh, it works best for the majority. It, it works best in um, situations that are average and that are familiar that are largely familiar um with respect to the training set uh, so the there is hope here because ai in and of itself in order to be able to um actually work for the diversity of experiences that we want from it will have to do something other than use the um the bias towards the statistical mean or the statistical average. And we've well, been I... experimenting with things like uh, data exploration. So rather than finding me the the um, most uh, the person that is most likely to have have a success in the workplace, according to the data from past successes, explore with me and tell me, um, find me some people that are somewhat that are different, um, that bring other perspectives into the situation, etc. Sorry, I think I heard you start a new question. No, no, no. <laughs> and uh, man, we need we need to do a part two uh, because we're we're almost out of time. But I guess that's what I'm really curious about. So, so you think there's hope? Like it's not it's an opportunity as much as a, a crisis. Yes, but it's going to take um, quite a um, it. It's going to take a lot to change um, the AI, to change the direction that the yeah. AI is going, yeah. and potentially to change our habits as well. And that's why um, I've, I've been working on this um, e equitable and accessible AI standard, which will will be uh, going to committee, and hopefully, um, we we hope to to bring it out in a timely fashion. And we are turning it into an international effort with international committee members, so that it can be harmonized across various countries. Because of course, AI knows no uh, national boundaries. Exactly. Um, and we're yeah, also exactly. 
<laughs> yeah. And we're going to have a um, a conference actually in Montreal at Concordia University on May 27th and 28th, where we're hoping to bring a large part of the, the disability community together to see uh, what are the things that we can do that would both um, uh, improve the benefits that we get from AI, but also uh, re reduce harms. And I really hope we can get you on before that conference because it sounds like such an important opportunity for people to take part. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been such a unique discussion on uh, everything as it stands with AI right now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for having me. All right. We'll talk to you soon. We were speaking with Dr. Yuta Trevorenis, and she was introducing us to the world of accessible and equitable AI. Very unique discussion to go back and listen to from our podcast platforms. We have a second hour of Kelly and Ramia coming your way. Collections and hobbies with AMI visual producer Bruce Baclarian. Also talking about Milk. It's an award-winning documentary, an intimate look at the politics of infant feeding. But after the break, we're going to go back into the archives and check out a Balance for Blind Adults interview we conducted in September. We'll be back with that on Kelly and Ramia. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. This is hour two of Kelly and Ramya. We're kicking it off with Grant Hardy and myself, Ramya Amuthan. Kelly's taking the uh, two hours off chilling and we're learning a lot about ai today grant such an incredible discussion we just had with dr uh, trevor Ennis, and uh, we barely got to the the committee and the work that she's doing but just the insight that she offered on the ethics around ai and uh, the models and what we're really relying on up until this point but so many red flags and things that we need to put press pause on if we want if we can acknowledge that AI is as big as it is, but also tremendously um, unethical in a lot of different ways, or has the potential to be. Yeah, I have to tell you that I have such a conflicted relationship with AI because some of it is amazing, mm -hmm. having those images described, having it do research for you, whatever that may be. And other times I'm just really afraid or anxious about this arms race to develop AI, which I feel like we've kind of jumped into without knowing yep. what we're doing, which, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's not hard to get the AI to say, you know, really ridiculous or, you know, offensive things about disability, then turn around and in the next breath, say something positive. Mm. You know, it just, I'm not, convinced that it's really gotten to this point where it's authentic i don't know what you think the uh, the thing is though that i just have to accept it because there's no going back yeah and i don't even know what authentic could possibly mean at this point because it's it's like computerized right like it's taking mm. it's very calculated or mathematical or formulaic like all these different things that we throw around a to describe ai is legitimately what it is it's taking everything that it has access to and then spitting out responses or roles that we need from it uh now without the human intervention it would just do it all based on whatever is available and, and that's exactly what our guest was pointing out is the stuff that's available is 
quite biased and constantly changing because, you know, historically what disability was and locationally or geographically how disability is perceived, just as an example if we're talking disability, is not consistent from place to place, from uh, concept to concept, and also the momentum of where we need it to go, the discussions around disability. But how do you explain all this to AI? Because we're becoming more and more hands-off as AI continues to get bigger and more powerful. It kind of reminds me of that quote from uh, uh, Harry Potter, where they <laughs> said, you know, be careful using something where you can't see where it keeps its brain. Yes, yeah. And a AI, you're, you're using something where you don't have access to exactly how it works. And that's odd. Yeah. When we say, you know, generically like, uh-oh, it's gotten too big and we can't do anything about it or we should be worried, because um, as you said, the, the war of who can do AI better, is it's already too big, right? It's too big to handle. It's too big to conceptualize. Um, but unfortunately, like the details that I'm hearing now, especially in this last conversation, really paint that picture of exactly why we still need to worry. Not just, you know, be afraid, but this is the reason why we need to be afraid because uh, it can't, like we can't just trust AI to do the right thing. There's there's some genuine concern and some genuine benefits too, but I I just feel like we're we're moving too fast. We're moving to a point where we're not separating what is AI and what is real, what is what is authentic yeah. human content. And I just I don't know. I really don't know okay. how to deal with it. It's getting harder and harder by the day. We're gonna um, we're unable to hang out with our friend Mathieu Rochette, our Montreal community reporter, today. So hopefully we'll get him back sometime this month to give us a scoop on what's going on in Montreal. But in the meantime, we're gonna take you back to a conversation that I had with or during the Balance for Blind Adults Community Fair. That was in September, but we still got a couple of these interviews that we got that we'd love to share with you. So. This one is with Dominic Cattulli, and he is the Program and Services Manager at CultureLink. So let's find out what CultureLink is all about. I'm Ramia Amadin of Kelly and Ramia, and I'm here with Dominic Cattulli, Senior Manager for Programs and Services at CultureLink, and we're going to learn a little bit more about CultureLink. Dominic, hello. Hello, Ramia. How are you? Nice to meet you. I'm doing well. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role uh, and the organization so we can get started. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, my name is Dominic Cattula, as you said, and I'm the uh, Senior Manager of Program and Services with CultureLink. Settlement Services is quite new to me. I'm originally coming from uh, Employment Services. And over the period of time that I've been with CultureLink, um, you know, I've seen the benefits of an organization like this. Our organization generally provide support to newcomers coming into Canada mm -hmm. and you know look, individuals looking for having their children settle in schools, uh, looking for health care, looking for uh, programming, looking for employment uh, supports and whatnot. So we're generally in a lot of community spaces, we're in schools, um, we offer services for youth, we also offer services for seniors. So there's a wide spectrum of programs that we offer for our our clients and the ones come visiting our offices. It sounds like there's a lot going on. Now, is this local to Toronto? 
Uh, yeah, we're located at 2340 Dundas Street, so we're right at Young and uh, Dundas and Bloor. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's we're in the GTA, and people, we, you know, over the pandemic, we've also branched out because there was no geographical boundaries, so a lot of people have connected us on remotely and whatnot. Um, now that the pandemic has gone away, a lot of us stuff are, our staff are back in the office, and a lot of our clients are also visiting our locations as well. Okay, so we know post-pandemic, um, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic must feel a little different. I'm not sure how long you've been working for the organization, but how has it felt in the last couple of years for people coming out for services? Are there particular things that you find people want more assistance and support with? Uh, yeah, the, the number one thing, unfortunately, I'm sure you've heard of this across the whole board, is a lot of the people that we meet with Number one issue is housing. Right. Housing has... Oh, across the board. Right, across the board. Housing is the number one thing that people are wanting. Um, no matter what program that you know we offer, we offer a wide spectrum of programs. And whatever my staff are talking to individuals, the number one thing they're asking about is housing. After housing, they're looking at health care. And after health care, they're looking at also, you know, how do they transition their, their children into the school systems. But right now, Ramana, the number one is, is housing. Mm -hmm. So with housing, I'm curious about um, accommodations, and I guess we can expand from housing, but when we're talking people with disabilities, and especially in our mm -hmm. current uh, venue right now and the event that's going on, Balanced Community Fair, I'm curious about people with disabilities reaching out to CultureLink for support. What kinds of particular things do you, do you want to point at that people can reach out for? Again, our programming is right across the board. We, we do not discriminate against anybody that's coming in, mm -hmm. even newcomers, generally newcomers and whatnot. Um, whatever disability they come into our offices is, we try to support them with that. We have connections with, throughout, throughout the uh, community with organizations that uh, provide specific uh, needs for individuals with disabilities. We're there to support them in what capacity that we can, but once we reach a capacity that we can support them, we also make the referrals to other organizations that allow or can support them a little better than we can with uh, housing or whatever, the, or whatever their needs are, employment needs or whatnot. So, then we can make that referral as well. Incredible. And I appreciate that there's like this web of support systems connected yes. to each other, right? That makes a huge difference. Yes. Especially in a place like Toronto where you're talking about multiculturalism, uh, newcomers from all around the world, the kinds of sensitivity uh, you need to provide for people to get that communication across. across. Yes. And I think that's the number one thing from people coming from abroad and coming into Canada and settling into Canada in the GTA area is they're not aware of the programming that's available mm -hmm. and, and when you know and when we make a referral to other agencies you know they're ecstatic that there is a, this opportunity because what we hear is that opportunities like this are very minimal from where they're coming from so when they come to an organization like CultureLink and you know kind of receive the services that they're receiving from us or making the referral to other outside organizations you know they're, they're happy to hear that these are available to them. Are you one of the first organizations that people go to when they come we, to We are on the, on the list mm -hmm. uh, when people arrive at the airports uh, as, as a settlement service agency that they get referred to. That's incredible. Yes. That's incredible. Tell me a little bit more about your role and how you help what you do on a regular. Uh, my, world's a little, my role is a little bit more boring. Um, what I do <laughs> is I kind of supervise the managers and I supervise staff in regards to, you know, accountability, you know, funding and all that stuff there. Um, you know, staff tell me about issues that they're having and challenges they're having with, you know, how to support their clients. So I look into it along with our CEO, Jemima uh, Sabapathy. We look at what opportunities we have to, uh, you know, increase our programming, 
what we can bring into the office and how we can support these individuals coming from abroad. And obviously you know so much about what the organization does. What do you most appreciate about it? I think the most thing, the one thing that we appreciate the most is that satisfaction that we've helped somebody kind of settle into a new environment, you know what I mean? Um, the fear is always there. You know, people come into a new country and whatnot, not knowing what to expect. And they're, you know, when they come in and, and meet with a friendly face and get the support or the education or the guidance from our staff, I think that's the number one thing that we can look at. You know, I'm not going to say everything is a 100% success story, but you know what I mean? We do have a, a large people or a large clientele that are that are happy with our services and have received the services that they're coming in to look for. Oh gosh, so many people come in here with so many stories, yes. hesitations, um, a lot of the times not even realizing what they're signing up for when they leave their places of home and come here. So exactly. appreciate organizations like this always and the help you do. Dominic, tell us where we can go for more information about CultureLink. You can visit our website, uh, culturelink.ca, and we're on various platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, you know, Twitter and whatnot, so we're on various platforms. Um, you can use our info at culturelink.ca, email address, and we'll there to support anybody and everybody. Thank you. Thank you. We were speaking to Dominic Catulli, Senior Manager for Programs and Services at CultureLink. It's lovely to share these, continue sharing these um, interviews that we gathered at the Balance for Blind Adults Community Fair. It was a great event, lots of new faces, lots of new programs to learn about. So. We got these snippets um, sprinkled throughout the rest of the year for you. I think we got a couple more that we want to get to, so just stay tuned because they'll pop up whenever. After the break, we're going to learn about a documentary uh, called Milk. It offers an intimate look at the politics of birth and infant feeding. We're going to learn more about it with the filmmaker of Milk. We'll be right back. This is Kelly and Ramia. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. To keep you posted on everything and anything, this is Kelly and Ramya. We got community events for you. We've got arts and culture for you. We've got lots of disability conversation most of it being AI today, but more than that, as usual. Grant Hardy and myself, Ramia Amudin, here with you until 4 p.m. Eastern if you're listening or watching on AMI-tv and 6 p.m. Eastern if you're on AMI-audio. Switching gears a little bit right now, uh, we're talking about Milk. It's an award-winning documentary created by filmmaker Noemi Wise that offers an intimate look at the politics of birth and infant feeding. And it's screened as part of the milk educational program through Safely Fed Canada, which is a national not-for-profit dedicated to improving emergency preparedness and food security for babies and young children. We have filmmaker Noemi Wise here. We're going to learn more. Hi, Noemi. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about the film, uh, Melk. What what inspired its creation? Well, you know, I have been doing social issues documentaries for a very long time. And when making Milk, my inclination was to find out what was happening at the beginning of life. You know, when we make these kind of films, we think and we hope that we are going to make a big difference in the world. So I, in my mind, was if I can help from the very beginning, 
then hopefully everything will be resolved. So that's how milk was born, trying to see how do we receive a new a new life into our world. Well, before we kind of get in more in depth here, we do have a trailer for the film. Why don't we roll that now? Sure, thank you. Every child has a right to basic nutrition. There's been a bit of a shift. A lot of the children under five don't make it. What often determines problems is how many interventions we have during labor and birth. Well, if I break your water, they're gonna send you up there. So she stuck her hand in to her elbow her and with her nail broke the water. I do feel like I was robbed of the experience of having my baby. I spent nine months carrying him and never gave birth. Many years, the government has faced the challenge of child mortality. And to end up with a dead baby and to have to carry their dead baby home in a cloth, it just broke my heart. So I'm dying to know the problem of infant formula flooding into emergencies. Is that still happening? It's still happening with a big emergency. It's cynical marketing, and the media haven't got hold of the truth. Uh, that's just a snippet wow. of the trailer, and my goodness, how much there is probably to discuss, and um, so much of it you had to 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 get um, into context for this. So let's talk about mothers and infants and the kind of systematic overlooking of the, the problems, the challenges, the devastations that people go through uh, during evacuation specifically. Do you mind telling us about that, Noemi? No, thank you so much. Um, you know, Milk, as we saw a little bit in the trailer, mm -hmm unveils for the first time what happens under emergency situations with moms and babies. And um, right now we have an educational program that initially the educational program, was, I created it back in 2017 um, and travel with it across around the world, uh, creating a much impact in communities globally. We bring it back now um, because are everywhere. The climate change and many other type of emergencies have caused a lot of issues for moms and babies and families and displacement. And when you are in situations of emergency, um, you have to be prepared. So we teamed up with uh, Safely Fed Canada which is a nonprofit uh, national organization that was created about seven years ago, inspired in a way for by milk and in response to the Fort McMurray wildfire that happened in Alberta. Mm. Now, uh, in in our country, we have seen a lot of wildfires uh, during the summer. We are getting prepared for the winter, and we don't know exactly what's bringing us. Um, so the intentions are that. Um, we can prevent uh, some of the issues that are happening with moms and babies, which unfortunately not too many people regard or talk about it through the educational program where the film is shown um, to bring the stories from moms from around the world and, and people relate to it uh, in a very deep way and then followed by an educational program to caregivers, to parents, to 
mainly to frontline uh, workers who have to deal with with moms and babies at that time. I think one of the things that that must be really tough is the fact that a lot of challenges are preventable. Mm. So I'm just curious if you can talk about like what some of the challenges are uh, related to infant feeding that we should be preventing and like what we can do to change, overcome those challenges. Well, uh, education comes first. Uh, so knowing what to do, uh, having a plan. Um, if if the mom is pregnant, she obviously knows she's going to be giving birth. If at any given time, uh, when a, an emergency comes in, there's a lot of stress that mother could be giving birth uh, sooner than expected. So it's important to be ready from the healthcare providers to know that if there's an evacuation or there is um, a displacement of a family that they are ready to to support that mom. There's a lot of emergencies in that sense, Um, premature babies. um, When you're in displacement, you have no power. Um, Mm -hmm. That's one of the the issues. When we talk about breastfeeding, uh, is supporting that mom to continue breastfeeding, to be close to that baby. and, and uh, we see a lot of commercialization. We deal with it in the film. Um, the formula companies come in very strongly with donations, um, which actually are not exactly what that mother and that baby need at that moment. Um, and the problem is that when you're in outside of the home, then you don't have electricity. Sometimes um, you don't have a way to sterilize that uh, bottle. Uh, it becomes a problem, and more so that the mom that stops breastfeeding will not have enough milk of her own to be able to continue with the breastfeeding. So how can we prevent it is by education, by preparing people to know what to do, to have an emergency kit. Nobody wants to know, to, to know about uh, emergencies and nobody wants to talk about it, but these are topics that are very, very important. We are coming into the winter in Canada and uh, hopefully we will all be fine and no emergencies will occur, but we could have blizzards and we could just simply have lack of power. Mm. Uh, And if there's just lack of power, what to do about it? How do you deal with that mom and baby? How do you teach them what to do in that situation so she can be prepared the people that are beside her can be prepared to support her. Um, My mother, when she was pregnant with me, and especially in her last trimester, living in Sri Lanka, war-torn Sri Lanka, it was, I hear many stories from her and from other women who had very similar experiences around just the politics, exactly what you're saying, the lack of power or change of power and not having uh, any control over plans or uh, lifestyle changes or whatever like you just have to drop everything and deal with rations with provisions with actually giving birth so let's talk about some of that um not necessarily politics and government but politics around infant feeding that you may want to mention around this well, you know, everybody likes to help and, and we welcome everybody's help uh, at that point of an emergency. 
but not too many people are thinking about the consequences of the type of help that you're offering that mm. mom and that baby. And it's important to understand that, that um, we need to prepare that, that mom and that baby, that, that parents, the caregivers, they need to understand uh, what are the consequences of donations. If donations are given, well, Maybe it's money that is given or is or is people that are around more healthcare workers that are around to support that mom in that kind of emergency. Um, you know, with the program we are going now, we are starting in Turkey as well as we are going across Canada, but as well in uh, we are starting in Turkey because there was a huge uh, earthquake at the beginning of the year and there's over 14,000 moms ready to give birth. Mm. So the program actually will be um, to to train those uh, frontline workers um, to know what to do at that moment in case that mother needs help, that baby needs help. That's that's amazing, and that's super, really impactful work uh, that you're doing. Uh, just curious about. Uh, I believe I read that you're you're already starting to see some positive change as you've been putting this program into action. Do you want to talk about some of the impacts you've seen, some of the changes that you're you're seeing coming down to the pipeline? Yes, well, you know, when we initially did the program a number of years ago, uh, we saw implementation of changes in Canada and, and and around the world. In Canada, we saw uh, implementation of changes as simple as saying, I'm going to bring uh, this as part of the curriculum. Um, I'm going to be bringing um, more education into frontline workers uh, from different communities across the country. Um, I did not know about this and now I'm aware of it. What we have seen over the last number of weeks since we started with the program here in Canada are testimonies that are coming back from healthcare workers that have been in the field for very many years who are saying, I never realized that emergency was something that I needed to know and mm. now I know what to do. Um, that we call it a very positive result. I mean, the fact that people are being aware of the problem and that can do something about it and they will learn more and they will talk to other people in their community is the gift of giving. And that's the intentions of the work that we are doing, that we are able to bring information to people that are in the field and also to caregivers alike, and that they can actually talk to everyone else that they know. So your support today in letting me talk about this and sharing with the public uh, and the audience um, is that they will be inspired to say, I want to know more about it. And, yeah. and how can I help or how can I tell anyone that I know that is pregnant or that is expecting a baby or that is working in the maternal and newborn health that they should be part of this program. Everybody's invited. Yeah. That's really fantastic, this work that you're doing on something so universal, but that it impacts literally everybody. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing. We are out of time, but really appreciate having you on. Well, thank you so much for having me, and everybody's invited Thanks. to milkfood.com. Thank you. That okay, was filmmaker. 
that was filmmaker Noemi Wise talking about their documentary, Milk. Check out that website. Super interesting stuff. And after the break, we have our monthly collection slash hobby segment. Bruce Baclarian, visual producer for AMI's Now with Dave Brown, is joining us. He's got some bikes he wants to tell us about. And it's not just a collection. It's a collection turned hobby. <laughs> we'll be right back. It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute. Welcome back. We're continuing the show here. It's Kelly and Ramya, Grant Hardy, and myself, Ramya Amadin, are hosting the show today. And once a month, we like to get to what we call collections and hobbies. And hopefully it's the second Tuesday of the month because that's when we usually have this. And today, we're checking in with our friend. Uh, he's also the visual producer on Now with Dave Brown, Bruce Baclary. And he's here, I think, for the first time. Bruce? I am. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's nice to have you on. And usually it's collections. Sometimes we feature hobbies. I think this falls under both because you have some bikes uh, that you revamp, repair. How how do you how do you categorize what you do? I tinker. I don't know. Tinker? I uh, <laughs> I yeah, restore. I like to believe. Uh, yeah. From top to bottom, I build from scratch. Um, you know, it depends upon the, the quality of the, the ride I'm looking for mm. and uh, the space I have and how many bikes my wife allows me to have. So I was going to say, <laughs> but you do consider this a collection, right? You have five bikes. I have five. So far. My wife has two. That's seven, and my kid has one. So eight in the house. But yes, my own are five. Okay. Um, I have a steel bike that, uh, that, that has a bit of history. Uh, it was built for someone I know in 1969 in in France. It's a blue, beautiful bike, which happens to be right behind me. Um, uh, this bike was, in, you know, just given to me. Uh, it was rusty was and terrible. Yeah, carry Wait, on. Was that the first one that you started the collection? No, I don't know. Uh, no, I have. The thing is, I've sold many as well, uh, so it's been, you know, you know, there are a few. The ones I currently have, I'll, I don't think I'll get rid of. Um, but yeah, so the blue one that I have is potentially the one I, that has the more the most weight. I like to believe, just because, um, because it, the the value that it that it has, uh, the the writer that uh, that built it actually wrote for the Tour de France in the, in the 30s. Uh, and he eventually became a bike builder himself, and then he sold it to um, to the, to my friend, who is now retired, and gave it to me. So I restored it, I um, bought new components for it, and I made it. Uh, you know, I painted it and uh, made it rideable. So yeah, that's that's. It, it has a name. It's, it's called La Marseillaise, like the uh, French national anthem. Uh -huh. So. That's my that that's the bike, uh, and we're seeing that bike right now. Uh, it's got it's a blue metallic metallic blue. I restored the labels as well, and uh, it's got uh, yeah. I built it again from the ground up, um, and there were some bits that needed to be um, soldered and in in steel, which is the material of this bike. The term is called braze on. So I had a local professional help help me braze those bits on, but everything else I did myself. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah, go. Yeah. Grant, you go with your question. I have many. I'm, 
I'm very curious, uh, how do you store all these bikes? Like, do you have a, a spot in your house where you where you keep them? How do you keep them out of the way? And how do you deal with the obligatory uh, wife uh, bike meter where you can't have too many bikes without having to renegotiate things a little bit? So I have, I have two in my studio slash bike room slash office. Um, for now, I have two in a shed in the backyard and one, which is my daily commuter in the, in the porch. So like, you know, ah. um, I have, thankfully there's a bit of room where I can store things. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. Cause I do have another one in the books that I want to build uh, a bit more modern, uh, a blend of steel and carbon. That's what I want to do. Um, so that one, I don't know. I haven't, I mean, Katie's my wife, pardon. Uh, it's, it's sort of, uh, not too keen on uh, having too many more bikes in the house because it's getting a little. You got to get rid of so one to get another one in. Maybe well, I just don't want to. They they they, they belong. There's, there's too much. Um, I was gonna say you just have to kind of sneak one or two in here <laughs> and there. You know, what's the difference between five and six? It's I know. It's just, just I, it's the same thing, but might as well. Uh, might as well just do that. Uh, but I know it, it'll come up. Yeah, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, can't put a fast one on Katie, but here's, <laughs> here's my question. Do you restore other things or is it bikes that have really like honed in this hobby for you? No, I think it's just bikes. I mean, and to be honest with you, I, I learned that the reason why I got into this was because I was tired of being, uh, bossed around by the local bike mechanics. <laughs> I, I, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Because okay. if you bring a bike, a bicycle to a to a to a local shop, um, I don't know why everybody's pretty rude and everybody just tells you off. And I was like, I'm done with this. I'm buying parts and equipment, and I'm doing this. And slowly but surely, now I have an empire of bikes, okay. and I do this for dear friends, for my wife, for uh, a million friends. So you know, if you're nice to me, I'll fix your bike. There mm. you go. Mm. I kind of see how it, it would get a little bit closer to uh, car mechanics where there's first this accusatory tone, like how could you have gotten your bike into this state, whatever. And then there's also <laughs> this like, oh, like the needs a minor, you know, repair for the handlebar. We are going to have to re replace all these other parts too. It's going to be $800 for this. But that's just it. And then not only do I save, I mean, I don't know if I'm really saving money, um, because I spend a lot of money on bikes. Right. But I mean, at the same time, it gives me uh, the control I want when, you know, in terms of time, when I need them by, like, and also the quality of ride I'm looking for. Like now I know, I, I, I learned how to build bikes and I bought uh, a carbon bike, which is, you know, high in material. And I was able to, to get basically this bike for half the price that you would pay for other stuff. And uh, again, I built it myself. It's an Italian beautiful bike that it would cost a fortune. And I got it basically for half price because I knew how to build it. So, mm. Oh, that's you know, great. It, it, it gives me that option. Do you have a most sentimental bike that either because you worked on or because of the way it was given to you? I do. And I don't have, I didn't provide images for this one. Um, but also, it's my mom's uh, bike. She rode it in the seventies, um, and she uh, passed away. And you know, I, 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 she brought it to Colombia, which is the country I was raised, uh, and, and and I brought it back. So I, you know, I 
to have it somewhere in the back. Um, I do have another beautiful yellow bike that is very sentimental because a dear friend also gave gave me. Uh, that one was also, again, needed to be restored. Uh, it was just beat up and rusty. So <laughs> I don't know. I find this therapeutic. So I, you know, sanded it to to the bare metal, um, apply some primer, some coats of uh, metallic paint and a lot of sanding. The trick to this is a lot of sanding after. And then, um, you know, put parts and, and made it rideable. And it's yeah. just, it's cool. You know, it, it allows me to go anywhere in the city with uh, different quality of rides and they feel great. You, you, you seem to really know what you're doing. You put this here, you solder this, whatever. How, how did you like, figure this out get so good at it or how do you just prepare to repair a bike do you watch like youtube ask friends just figure it out what what's your secret um youtube is definitely a source i recommend mm. people that are interested in doing this uh to you know do some youtube of course some internet forums uh and also just honestly going to a bike shop and asking things yeah, uh, and mechanics. Pretend if you're humble enough, <laughs> they could tell you <laughs> a bit of uh, <laughs> secrets. Um, some of them, but uh, yeah, uh, those three sources I like to believe. But yeah, YouTube is the way to go. Number one. Yeah, Did you I, ever? Sorry, go ahead. I was just curious if you ever royally screwed up something <laughs> that you were trying to restore and then had to get assistance or start yep. over. Big time. Uh, a dear friend brought his bike, and and he mentioned he had a a chain problem. And I said to him, "No problem. Come over. Let's <gasps> oh, have a no. beer. Let's we do this." And I couldn't put it. I couldn't put it back together. Oh, like no. in terms of tension. And I was like, "Oh man!" And he needed the bike, so I Oopsie. gave him. I loaned him one bike. I had to keep it for like two nights until I figured out the problem. Um, it was pretty embarrassing, but whatever. That's how you learn, <laughs> you right? You live, you learn. Yeah. 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 And do you have friends, yeah. though? Like, your friends give you bikes to repair, but do you have friends who also take part in restoring bikes the way you do that you can kind of lean on? Or are those the mechanics at the shop? I guess acquaintances, yeah. The, the mechanics, they're, I, I kind of look up to them because they do have a significant more experience than I, than I do. Um, but they're like... I think just like many things, like the more they know, the more cranky they become. So it's, um, it's true. Uh, so when you, I like to try to blend old and new in terms of componentry and components and geometries. Um, and the folks that know a lot just kind of try to stay stuck, stuck in the past. It's like, no, no, this is the way to go. So, um, you know, I kind of, you know, I take some of their advice. Uh, I appreciate it, and I just kind of do my own thing. I think that's the way to go. Do you do you have tips on how to flatter a mechanic enough so that they share <laughs> some of their secrets? I I can imagine how I might do it, but just curious from someone who's actually done it. I mean, you gotta know what they are into in terms of. Coffee taste or dinner? Quality of ride. No, well, no, I mean, everybody likes beer. So, I mean, you know, sure, it's if you give them a six pack, they'll be happy. But if you let oh, it, if you're fine. humble enough to 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 ask a question, uh, like 
try to like basically show that you're an enthusiast and then you want to learn more and uh, appreciate what they do. They are kind of nice. Um, I feel that that's a way of kind of getting, you know, winning them over. Mm. Oh, interesting. First, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just curious because, like, nowadays, you mentioned YouTube already, but nowadays people are just all over the place self-teaching, right? And any kind of hobbies. Like, I could just decide today that I want to do this thing and not necessarily have to do much more than go on the internet to figure it out and then go and get all the parts or tools that I need. Um, do you go on forums? Like, do you take part in the online life of being part of the bike restoring community uh sure yes there are definitely a bunch of forums but at the same time just like in many things on the internet there are internet warriors like mm. keyword warriors as they call them that you know sometimes it's hard to determine what's the right thing so you do have to find some of the information in, in, in a few websites a few forums to really know what it is that could work best for me mm. um I like like specific part and specific type and whether it's a good idea to upgrade to a modern system or not based on the bike. Uh, for example, right now, the current trend is bicycles with uh, a cassette, which is the, the sprocket at the back that allows you to run multiple speeds. And, you know, the current trend is that you have 12 speeds, but do you really need 12 speeds? <laughs> 11, 9, whatever. I mean, it's really your, your comfort level how much money you have to spend and uh, what you want to do with it. So, yeah. Huh. And I just always find it interesting how you look up a DIY or video on YouTube. It's like, here's how to repair this. First, you just grip this like that. Then you just turn your screwdriver this way. You do one little thing and boom, you're done. And I'm like, okay, trying this in the real world, like this doesn't seem to be as easy or working the way that they're telling me it's supposed to work. I mean, it, it really depends. Uh, some, I, when you look at the intricacies of some of the technology, you do find that uh, you admire the, the engineering behind things. <laughs> and like in bikes like the blue one that I fixed, um, seeing the, like taking the old bits out and putting the new ones in, you really appreciate what it, like 60 years of technology evolution. Mm. Um I don't know. I feel that uh, there are uh, many ways to uh, put these things together and make everybody <laughs> happy and learn at the same time. Do you have any uh, opinions on e-bikes and hybrids? Is that just um, sacrilege? I say, I think they're game. No, no. Whatever keeps you moving, uh, it's cool. Um, I feel that e-bikes, I don't know. I'm for now young and able uh maybe in the future i will not be and i mm. feel an e-bike is something that could help me out get out and it's not just about the physical element it's about the freedom that a bicycle can give you so i feel that an oh e-bike yes. can potentially provide that to me and as a matter of fact uh, my wife and i are buying another bike mm. but that's different because that's for like to carry the kids to the back so it's going to be a long one. Uh, they're going to buy them like pretty soon. Um, and with that, my wife can go downtown to the office, carry both kids. Um, 
and I could pick them up after on the same bike. Cause you know, with two kids, it gets a bit harder. Um, you know, 50 pounds to the back. It's a mm. little heavy and in terms of stability and whatnot, but yeah, e-bikes are great. I think they're awesome. Um, I, I think that I welcome whoever uh, needs something like this to, 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 to use them for sure. Good. City like Toronto, you'd have almost more freedom on a bike than in a car. Yeah, it sounds you like can it. Move through the traffic real quick. Oh yeah, downtown for sure. Like, there's no question about it. Um, finding parking, um, just getting around is so much quicker. I I never drive downtown. I would, you know, I I I don't know if it sounds surprising, but we drive in the house. We have one car. We don't use it all the time, but we do use it. Because it's 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 a it's a tool, just like many things. We just are we just we're bike people. Mm. It's nice. No, it, it is honestly. There are so many uh, trails around the city. It's really lovely to go biking and get to places much faster than sit around in traffic. More enjoyable in the summertime as well. Bruce, thank you. This has been nice. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Bruce Baclarian is the visual producer for now with Dave Brown uh, here on AMI, and he joined us for Collections and Hobbies, which you can catch on the second Tuesday of every month. we got a fun one lined up for you in December as well. Taking a quick break and coming back to wrap up the show with you, we will tell you what's coming up tomorrow on Now with Dave Brown. Alex Smythe is hosting this week, and uh, we've got a closing moment and some pod highlights for you. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. Thanks for tuning in. It's Kelly and Ramya on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. Quick reminder that the first edition of the show is airing at 2 p.m. Eastern Time live on AMI-tv. 4 p.m. Eastern Time is the first edition of the show on AMI-audio. Available on podcast wherever you listen. Just search for Kelly and Ramya. We've got segmented form and full show podcasts for you. Grant Hardy and I have been hanging out together for the last two-ish hours, and uh, we're here to wrap the show with you. Before we get to the end of our show, let's jump to now with Dave Brown. That's the morning show on AMI-tv, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, every weekday. Alex Smythe is hosting this week, and Grant, you're going to give us a preview of what's coming up on the Wednesday edition. So they've got Halifax community reporter Melina Kazanavichus, uh, Kazanavichis, sorry, will share her experiences of delivering presentations to 400 plus elementary students on, uh, on her life as a blind uh, individual. Uh, financial planner Ryan Chin will talk about what clients should consider feeling comfortable uh, related to sharing personal information with their financial advisor. ODEN is wrapping up their annual Rethinking Disability Conference tomorrow, and we'll be featuring an interview with Lisa Spencer, one of the event's speakers. Okay. I'm curious about that financial chat with Ryan Chin, who also joins us, by the way, monthly. Um, is sharing confidential information, is that what you said, with your financial advisor? Mm-hmm. Personal uh, information. That... They're like, how much, how much money do you have to invest? I'm not telling you. <laughs> No, just kidding. <laughs> exactly. But it's an interesting question, though, because, you know, we come in with so much, uh, like, nuanced background on finances. Maybe if we feel uncomfortable, maybe we feel guilty or shameful about our spending and saving habits. So there is a lot of, like, 
kind of trust building that happens, especially initially when you're building that relationship with your financial advisor? So curious that's what he has to share. Definitely true. Yeah, that's a good question too. How do you overcome that shame? <laughs> yeah. Guilt about your spending. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, I remember because it's not that long ago that I started to talk to a financial advisor and I remember thinking like, oh no, he's going to lecture me, isn't he? Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gonna be like? Exactly. All right. Good one. Good one, Rye. Um, yeah, that's mm -hmm. absolutely an interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking forward to that and everything else on their lineup, 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV is now with Dave Brown, also available on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, so, Grant, I hope you're still there because I really want to chat with you about this next little bit. It is about Kim Kardashian. Now, I don't look to Kim Kardashian for anything. I do not keep up with the Kardashians. However, this thing was intriguing as a fun fact. Kim Kardashian has a glam clause in her will. Okay, it states that if she's ever in a position where she cannot get ready herself, can't communicate, or she's unconscious, someone, anyone, has to make sure <laughs> her hair, nails, and makeup are all perfect. Now, I don't know if that's word-for-word -word quotes from her actual will, but perfect is the word that was used here. In reaction to a headline from January 2018 that read, Fear not, Kim Kardashian's hair will always be done. Per her will, the entrepreneur verified that, in fact, the rumor is true. She said she updated a legal document to include a section, a.k.a. clause, explaining that even if she's, quote, out of it and can't communicate, she must still be hashtag flawless. I mean, I'm not surprised. Uh, maybe Grant was very surprised, and that's why he left me. But <laughs> I'm not surprised. If anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Kim K. And, you know... I, I we guess we joke and we tease, but imagine the ridicule she potentially has the insecurity of feeling if she wasn't uh, hashtag flawless even at the end. And I guess it's not just the end, right? Like this is in her will, but it's just any kind of lack of capacity for her to take care of herself in this way, aesthetically, hairs, hair nails makeup now i wonder if the clause included all the details of what that's supposed to be because um who is going to take that what do you call it the power of attorney position to figure out what exactly she would have done i don't want to be i do not want to be put in that position i do not envy who has to deal with this all right we're at the end here's what's coming up uh, on part of the show tomorrow the wednesday edition of kelly and romeo with grant and kelly they've got the first sitcom on television with Greg David, as well as other conversations with registered nurse Leslie Defoe. That's it for me. Talk to you later. Hi, everyone. It is Beth Day here with the Kelly and Ramia show. Um, today, I just kind of wanted to talk about how excited I am for our live event um, in just under two weeks. Uh, yeah, I cannot wait. Um, for multiple reasons. Firstly, I am so excited to actually get to meet my team in person. Um, for those of you that don't know, we have like a pre-show meeting every day. So I talk to everyone very, very regularly. But 
actually in terms of meeting people, I have only actually met Kelly and very, very briefly Ramia in person. And I think that was like just over four years ago. So a very long time ago now. Um, But I'm so excited to meet everyone in person. Like we have such great chemistry as a team, um, even though it's virtual. But to be together in person, I think it's just going to be really exciting. Uh, And yeah, I just cannot wait. I'm also excited because, excited and nervous, I guess, because this is going to be my first time leaving my daughter for like more than like one or two nights. Um, I'm going to be gone three nights um, and four days. So that's going to be crazy. So crazy because, yeah, I don't know, like she's just over 20 months old now and it's just always been me and her like I've left her for the odd night or like the odd uh, like kind of short weekend um but I've never left her for uh, like several <laughs> days at a time so yeah I'm excited but I'm nervous about that but I also do think that when you become a parent I know it's so cliche to say this but when you become a parent like you don't think that you forget yourself until like you have to spend lots of time on your own and then you're kind of like oh god like (laughs) what did I used to do when I was by myself so I'm I'm excited to kind of reconnect with myself um and I used to love traveling like I mean not that I ever traveled lots particularly on my own um because I've always had Patronus with me and I'm really crossing my fingers that he's going to be coming um as if you've listened to any of my other vanity cards um he's dealt with a lot of health health issues over the last little while um but fingers crossed he'll be coming with me so I won't be completely alone but yeah like it's gonna be oh it's gonna be so much fun um and the event itself like we have so many really really cool things happening I know Kelly kind of alluded to a few things on Friday's show um but there is some really amazing guests, amazing music. Um, like it's yeah, it's gonna be fantastic. I'm hoping to see lots of you there. Uh I just yeah, I'm really excited to, you know, give my husband some time with our daughter by himself. Um, I'm excited to meet all of my team in person because we really do, like I said, have great chemistry um virtually and everyone gets along really really well so I think that's only going to be you know multiplied in person I would say and yeah I'm so excited and I really hope that all of you can tune in um whether it's after the fact or can be there in person I think it's going to be amazing and yeah I'm just so excited so um yeah Let's hope that everyone can tune in, whether it be there or after the fact. Either way, I cannot wait to meet some of our viewers and just spend time with people in person for once because since COVID, I just feel like that never really happens anymore. Anyway, super excited. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye. The Walrus is Canada's conversation and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.